Some were delighted that you uh, can be here tonight. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them once again to Romans chapter 2. And we'll cons- I guess this is not my uh, mascara pencil. Um, these are real eyebrows, I promise. <clears throat> Let me read again. Um, well, actually, what I want to read tonight is just the just the parenthesis. I'm not. Sh- yeah, I, we probably will get uh, through with the parenthesis, but there's a few things that I wanted to return to just to kind of wrap some things up, uh, clean that up, uh, hopefully, and then we'll we'll jump into 17 through 24 tonight. But let me just read the parenthesis, starting at verse 13 and reading through verse 15. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. Now, um, if, you were, if you've been here like three straight weeks, you'll know that we spent the first week organizing the text, making sure that we could uh, make sure with, uh, the parentheses go. And then we commented on verses 12 uh, and then uh, 16, actually 11, 12, and 16, which, which I suggested was the thought. And then verses 13 through 15 are parenthetical. And um, um, addressed that last week. Um, as Paul tries to correct uh, a mistaken notion, particularly in concerning Gentiles. Uh, and I'm about to do something right now that I may regret doing because I'm about to answer a question that you may not even be asking. And that, that's probably not very wise to do. But uh, there is something in that parenthesis that, that is somewhat controversial. Um, and it is often used in a, in a debate and um, and the debate is is a pretty significant one, at least when it comes to a question that that people seem to ask fairly frequently, and that is, uh, what about people who have never heard the gospel before? You know, it's it's the whole idea of what about the poor heathen in Africa who's never heard the gospel? Um, and this text is right in the middle of all that. And um, whereas you may have never heard it, um, I, I wanted to draw your attention to it because there's something in here that may, I don't know, maybe you can use it on, um, would you like to be a millionaire one of these days? Um, look at verse 14. Here's, here's where it is. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these also having not the law are law in themselves, etc. Now, now that's the language right there that is pretty controversial. And what is th- that text is used to suggest is that that pagans who have never heard the gospel um, can and do save themselves by living up to the light that they have. Now, now you can see where that may have come from from verse fourteen. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law and so there are those who use that text to suggest that um, the heathen can and do save themselves 
by living up to the light that they have and because they have no more light uh, but they have this little bit of light because they live up to that uh, God doesn't hold them accountable or anything else and therefore are uh, justified and, and set free etc etc now that's the question that I want to address that I don't know that you're even asking <laughs> or ever wanted to ask or even care to ask but um, if it is a question that comes up frequently particularly when you're sharing your faith and you're telling people that people have got to come to Jesus Christ or they'll be damned and and this sweet person on the other side of the conversation looks at you and you say and says wait a minute wait a minute are you saying to me that the poor heathen in Africa the poor innocent native in Africa who's never heard the gospel is going to be condemned and then we squirm a bit and we say, well, yeah, I guess I am saying that. <laughs> well, and, and here's a text that is used by those who disagree with us to suggest that all a, all a pagan has to do, all an innocent native has to do is live up to the light that he has. Um, and if he does that, he can and will uh, be set, uh, will, will be redeemed. Now, let me, sh let me show you the first practical problem with that position. Um, anybody in here committed to global missions? Anybody? Then you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Because by sending missionaries, what you are doing is raising, you are exposing them to things that they never knew. If you'd have just left them alone, they'd have been fine. But now, by you sending missionaries over there, you have given light and thus have condemned the poor guys when they were just fine without you. Leave them alone, for heaven's sakes. So the first consequence of such a position is stop sending your missionaries because you're just damning them. And they'd have been better off if you'd have left them into just living up to the light that they had. So that's the first problem. The second problem, ladies and gentlemen, is that contextually, um, the whole argument about the innocent native in Africa is not even something Paul has in view in this paragraph. This section is not teaching um, about the ways of salvation for anybody. Gang, do you remember when we started chapter 2, and I told you we're going to hear this over and over and over again, but... This is a long argument and a very intricate argument on the part of Paul trying to lead you to a place where he is finally going to say over in verse 19, and, and by the way, that's where we're going to try to finish, is actually verse 20 this semester. But he's leading you to this grand conclusion of his argument, and it is, now we know that whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before god it's the same argument in verse 23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and paul's concern with his jewish audience or at least the portion of his audience that was jewish is that they felt that they were in a special category because they were possessors of and receivers of the law and having heard the law, they were fine. That's what Paul is trying to do in this argument. And he does it in a dozen different ways. He is not laying out, and he will in chapter 3, and very frankly, if you can just hang in there with me until next fall, 
we really get some fun stuff when we, when we get into chapter 3 and 4 and, and, and 5, 6, and 7. There's, a, there's just great stuff ahead of us. But this is a very lengthy argument on the part of Paul to convince a Jewish audience that your Judaism, your Jewishness, will not deliver you in and of itself. That all the world stands condemned uh, under, under God. And that's all he's trying to teach here. He is not trying to teach how any man gets to heaven. So, um, contextually, ladies and gentlemen, it is, to, it is to destroy Paul's whole argument and, and, and can't be used in the way that I suggested that some use it. There, there is one other text that I want you to see and, and I hope this will clarify things, hopefully, for some of you marvelous thinkers. If you can find Romans 10 real quick. Um, he makes a statement in Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. And that's another text to which our friends will take us and say, you see, as long as you do what you know is right and wrong, you will live by them. Well, first of all, Paul has in mind a law that if you do, you will indeed live by them. By the way, you know, ladies and gentlemen, there's a second way to get to heaven, don't you? There is an altogether different route to get to heaven. You don't need Jesus. All you have to be is perfect. If you are perfect, you are in no need of a Savior. And the problem there, as you can tell, that none of it, in fact, the law that Paul has in mind in Romans 10 is this one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, if you have done that throughout the entirety of your life, then then you're in need of a savior. So the, the point is for anyone to suggest that a man could be saved um, as long as he does certain things is to misunderstand lots of different things that the New Testament teaches. Gang, the, the law is not interested in whether you heard it or not. The law is interested in whether you did it or not. And the Gentile is not going to be damned because he didn't hear the gospel. Or the, the pagan is not going to be damned because he didn't hear the gospel. The pagan is going to be damned or condemned because he didn't live up to what he knew was right. Which is the argument of the parenthesis. That even in, they're not living up to even what they know to be... Um, a spirit-led or a conscience that was authored by God. Well, I, I hope that was somewhat elucidating to you. That is an argument that, that seems to come up frequently, particularly when you're dealing with people who, um, who've heard the gospel for the first time. All right, let me, let me just kind of summarize real quickly the lessons of this parenthesis, and then we're going to move on. Number one, the main message of that little parenthesis is that God's judgment is always fair uh, always according to a standard, and that standard is known, at least in part. That's what's in that little parenthesis there. The second uh, part of it, or the second lesson in it, is that the law, which Jews thought was their safety, is the very thing that condemned them. And in the case of a Gentile, 
It is his violations of his own moral consciousness that condemns him. So that covers everybody, Gentile and Jew. And we're all under the fair and righteous and just condemnation of God for not having lived up to that which we knew. And then uh, a, a third lesson I think you can draw out of there is that salvifically, there is no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. The Jew thought there was. Um, the Jew thought because he was a Jew, everything was fine and he was safe. Um, he thought that there was a vast difference between him and a, and a Gentile. And the argument of Paul is there is no difference. Uh, you had the law and you didn't live it. He had a moral consciousness and he didn't live up to that. And thus both uh, fall in the righteous and fair and just condemnation of God. Now, I think we can move ahead uh, to verses 17 to 24. Let me read you at least verses 17 to 23. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you uh, yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should, steal, should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? I'm gonna, uh, you, you make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? I'd like to stop right there because verse 24 is just so marvelously uh, poignant. We'll get back to that maybe next week. But guys, here is the Apostle Paul ever being the, uh, the um, applier of truth. What you get in verses 17 through 24, uh, from really from 17 to the end of the chapter, um, is Paul is going to try and drive home. He's going to try and uh, apply to, the, to the, his Jewish audience the principles that he's been laying down here to form. He, he is going to act as an applicator of the truth that he's taught. And guys, uh, one of the things that I, I, I just want to point out by way of application, preaching is never complete. It's never, com it's never over until some application has been made. Uh, teaching, learning, listening has, is never over until some application has been made. Gang, um, the Bible is not a textbook uh, on religion. And to study it like that is a very dangerous thing. I don't know if you've been keeping up with um, the, the Shelby County School Board, but they're trying to introduce a Bible course into the curriculum in the Shelby County Schools. And they're trying to raise the money and uh, $150,000 from private the private sector to get a, a Bible course taught in the, um, in the public school system. Are you happy about that? I'm not. I say, save your 150000 Did you see in the paper this morning how they want to teach it? How many books in the Bible are there? Well, I hope you know there's 97 books in the Bible. I hope you've got that little Bible fact down pat. But ladies and gentlemen, that ain't going to do you a bit of good. If you are studying this book, it's simply a textbook on religion. You've missed it because that's not what it is. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the mind of God in print. Black words on a white page. You want to know what God thinks? Here's what he thinks. He thinks a whole lot more, but we have, we've only got one lifetime to study this book. 
and we can't even master this one. This is, this is the revelation of God. This is the thing through which you will come to know this magnificent, transcendent God of ours. So how many books there are in it? Well, I hope you know. But it doesn't matter. You know, um, very frankly, um, well, I, I, might, I might really offend someone here. Are any Duke graduates in here? Um, you know, Duke has this, this, uh, this school of uh, religion. And, and the Bible is taught as a major world religion among all the other major world religions. Gang, that's a nice course, and I hope you will, uh, you know, chalk it up as some kind of introduction to literature. But it's not Bible study. And here we see Paul saying, now that I've laid down some principles, I want these principles to bite into you. Sometimes they will bite into you pleasantly, and you will exult in your forgiveness and your deliverance and your transfer from a kingdom of darkness to a kingdom of light. Sometimes they will bite into you in conviction. Sometimes they will bite into you evoking thanksgiving. Sometimes they will call you to greater plateaus of commitment. But we have never studied enough until it has done something in that regard to us as individuals. Now, gang, um, what he is going to drive home in, from verses 17 on is, is the idea, or at least trying to correct the idea that Jews possessed, that because they had been given the law, they were exempt from the condemnation of God. He is going to try and make... It, that's, the, that's the principle that he is now going to apply in very specific, very biting terms. here we go um, what Paul essentially does in verses 17 through 23 is he is pointing out their failure to act in terms of the knowledge that they possessed gang the essence of the charge that Paul makes in these six verses the essence of the charge that he makes in this section against the Jews is that they are hypocrites. You know, that's a fighting word. You know, there's, there's, there's very little that I would rather, or rather, uh, um, any less be called. Ooh, that wasn't very. Um, of all the things I don't want to be called, I don't want to be called a hypocrite. And you know, you know what the number one charge of the pagan world against us is. The church is filled with hypocrites. There is a sense, ladies and gentlemen, that I speak, I hope to your comfort, there's, there's a sense in which the institution that is the least filled with hypocrites is the Christian church. Because we're the ones who have to admit that we're sinners to even get in. We've got to own the fact that we failed, even to become a member. We've got to stay up front that without Jesus Christ, we're lost. So there's a sense in which 
um, they're, if you're real, um, in the hypocrite with a capital H, we ain't. But that doesn't mean that the charge doesn't have some validity. Um, it's going to take a long time, folks. We're going to spend the rest of this. Oh, I got 14 minutes, and then um, next week. But um, uh, it is a charge that we absolutely abhor. But it is a sin that is this, that besets us all. Um, you remember? Let me let me tell you something. Just the first characteristic that I want to give you. I've got about five characteristics that I want to give you next week of hypocrisy. Let me give you the first one. In Luke chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, so he's saying, and by the way, he speaks much. I mean, he reserves his sternest rebukes to the, to the, the hypocrites, the Pharisees. Um, so he is saying, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, what is leaven? I mean, you know, it's yeast. What is one of the characteristic properties of yeast? It spreads. <laughs> it permeates silently, uh, undiscernibly, undetectably. It spreads. So, ladies and gentlemen, if the church permits hypocrites to live in their midst, she's doomed. Because ultimately, the leaven takes over the whole lump. <laughs> There's nothing that we need to be quicker to root out than the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And notice what Paul does, guys. This is, by the way, I looked at this this morning. I, 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 I am. I remember this from time past, but I just had to check and make sure. The, the Greek word is, is a, it's a, in fact, the English word is born right out of the, the Greek word. I, I, if I had my board over here, I'd write it up for you, you know, let you know I can write Greek again. But um, it's hupokrites. That's the feminine, hupokritas. That's the masculine. Uh, hupokrisias, that's the noun, uh, hypocrisy. But now I, I can't tell you which one came first, but the term Hupokrites, or hupokritas, uh, is a term that I, again, I don't know whether the New Testament borrowed it from Greek plays or Greek plays borrowed it from the New Testament. I think the, the Greek um, tragic, uh, tragedy plays, um, I think that the, the authors of the New Testament borrowed that term from, uh, from the Greek usage of it. And do you know, in fact, uh, if, you, um, if you ever go to the Orpheum, I hope you go to the Orpheum. Jimmy Umloff got all over us one Saturday morning, uh, guys. By the way, we're meeting Saturday morning, gentlemen, for breakfast. And, and, and Jimmy Umloff was just, I wish every one of you could have heard me said last week but, or last month. But he was talking about how he takes his wife to the Orpheum. He does do that, doesn't he, Jimmy? I mean, he didn't lie. Did he? He's no hypocrites, is he? But uh, if you go to the Orpheum, you're going to see these little masks. You know, the mask has got the big green on you know, and the mask has got the big crown on Well, in Greek, in Greek plays, uh, you know, that's the way they did things. You know, they held, and, and they still do it from time to time. You know, they hold the little things on the stick, 
and then they, if they wanted people, if they were going to say funny things, they'd put the funny mask up there, and they'd say their lines behind those, and everybody would know they're supposed to be funny. And then um, when it was supposed to be sad, they'd change masks and put one, you know, in the middle of the and, you know, and the, the person who did that, guess what he was called? He was called a hypocritas. He was the man behind the masks. The hypocrite is the man, the woman, behind the masks. Gang. Let's look at the text. I, I could wax eloquent, or at least I could wax. Um, but verse 17 indeed you know I can almost see Paul just just rise in, in, in indignation and and take his little bony point bony finger and begin to point it at his audience and raise his voice and say indeed you are called a Jew a Jew it's a very special word. It's a, it's, a, it's a special name. It, it meant something. It meant that you were, it's a great privilege be, to call yourself a Jew because that meant you were God's people. You call yourself, you, you're called a Jew. And, and what's characteristic about you? And you're, you rest on the law. Your safety, your reliance is on the law. And you even make your boast in God. You brag about God being your God instead of Moloch and Baal and all those other guys. You boast that Jehovah is your God. You go on to boast that, you, that you're a possessor and you know His will. And because you do, because you know His will, you approve things that are excellent being instructed out of that law. That is, you're bright enough, you're sharp enough, you're intelligent enough that you can discern that which is good and that which is not good. And you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind because you've been instructed out of that law. You've assumed the position of being a teacher of those stupid, stupid, stupid Gentiles. They got no brains whatsoever, but you do. A light to those who are in darkness. You call yourself a Jew and you say, yeah, because we got the law. We're a light for everybody else, all those poor ignorant slobs out there. An instructor of the foolish. You possess more information than the rest of them. And so you put yourself up on a pedestal to teach everybody else. And then those poor babes you instruct having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Having a form. And then, ladies and gentlemen, Paul sticks the knife in. You. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal. You steal? 
I'll calm down. <laughs> but I remember, ladies and gentlemen, um, maybe you remember too, and I'm, I'm still kind of embarrassed about it. You know, I told you last week, never have I left, ever left a pulpit where I didn't feel like, gosh, I wish I could have done that better. Let me do that again. Everybody come back. Let me do that because I, I know I can do better. Never walked away feeling like, oh, how did you handle that well? Never. Not once. How many times have I been behind a pulpit? But never have I been able to do that. Because I always wanted to change one thing and tweak something. But, but um, last summer, was it last summer? I think. I did this series on adultery. Was it last summer? I can remember one time, ladies and gentlemen, one of those Sundays that I bet you, you walked out of there and said, he's going to die. He's going to die. He's wild. Somebody needs to cage him. Get rid of him. He's awful. I don't know what you said, but you probably said, because I remember I came to a point and I, and I, it was, a, I remember the sentence. It had to do with another man, with a man taking another woman's wife. And I'm loud, but I have never screamed like that. Never. And, and somebody came up to me and said, something like, you know, you know, you know, and I said to him, I said, well, let me tell you something. Nothing, 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 nothing could be more upsetting to me than a man who took another man's wife. I could still scream. But ladies and gentlemen, what if I did that? And I'm an adulterer. I'm not. I, 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 I must confess that my eyes have been places that they probably never should have been. But ladies and gentlemen, I have never kissed another woman. I have never patted another woman. I have never longed for another woman. I don't like women. <laughs> I like one. <laughs> I told y'all that last week. <laughs> but there's only one woman that I like. But what if I were to stand before you with such zeal and such fervor and tell you that thou shalt not commit adultery? It's a terrible thing to take another man's wife. stay in the pulpit and hiding it from you all. That, ladies and gentlemen, is utter hypocrisy. But my brother and sister in Christ, it is not wrong to damn something while you say, I'm still working to try to get it. Let's say pride. Oh, you bunch of proud guys out there. You're all awful. <laughs> well, that, that has a hollow ring to it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, Jimmy, sure. <clears throat> but pride is still wrong. Whether I've mastered it or not, it's still, it's still something that God hates. That is not wrong. But to stand before you and tell you 
Thou shalt not steal when you steal. That, ladies and gentlemen, is living a life behind a mask. And Paul, I, this is such a marvelous section of the Bible. Do you see what this pastor did? He has been arguing with them for however long, at least seven minutes it took him to read it. And then he said, now, you who call yourself a Jew, you rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things like that. Do you mean to tell me that you, that you, who call yourself the instructor of other people, this law does not instruct you. Let me close with this because I'm late. Gang, is it not absolutely remarkable that a man can be so deluded that he can even brag about his relationship with God You know, guys, I'm reading, I'm just reading all the time, but, you know, one of the things they're saying about the, the millennials, the new millennium, all that business, that people are so interested in spirituality. Now, they're not much interested in Jehovah, <laughs> but they're interested in spirituality. And, and you've seen that. I'm, you know, a lot of people now are, uh, they want to they they tie into the mystical, you know, and the new age is hot and, and you know, crystals are big, and et cetera, et cetera. Isn't it unbelievable that someone could be so deluded that he could find himself in the midst of bragging about a relationship with God and not have one? Unbelievable. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is how sin will blind us. Paul, evermore the, the pastor, takes these principles and applies them, and applies them well. <laughs> Let's close. I tell you what, um, you, you probably need to leave if you're... Uh